We're taking a little break from Isaiah, uh, going to look at um, three psalms that relate to Easter. Um, in order to get into this, though, I need to set a little bit of background for you. Um, first of all, this is not a widely held position, but I think it's the right position to take about the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a royal hymn book. It is for David and his house. And this psalm is peculiar. Psalm 16 that I want to look at this morning is peculiar in that regard in that um, it seems to be and is a confession of trust by David um, in the Lord and therefore very important in that regard. But we'll have, we'll have much more to say about it as we go. So the Psalms are a book, uh, is a royal hymn book. Most Psalms have themes in them that are most appropriate to David and his heirs. I read a book on this in India some years ago. I always take a book in India, to India that I wouldn't read anyplace else because I'm going to get so bored. There's, you wake up at 3 in the morning, what do you do? So, <laughs> so I was reading this and going through Psalms uh, at the same time. It was called Kingship and the Psalms by a guy named John Eaton. We'll have a quotation from him shortly. But he was arguing that essentially all the Psalms are royal. There is no such thing as a separate group of Psalms that are royal. All the Psalms are royal in one way or another, either celebrating the Davidic house or speaking to the Davidic house or talking about the rule of the Lord over Israel which the Davidic house is an agent of. Does this make sense to you? Even when, I just read this morning again, I think it was Psalm 76, in which the uh, psalmist is convinced that uh, the temple has been destroyed. Even when the temple is destroyed, even when in Psalm 89, the kingship has been, as, as the psalmist says in Psalm 89, you have thrown his crown into the dust. Even when the Davidic house has ceased, see, in my Bible, see, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things that most people don't know. And one of the things I know is that Psalm 89 comes from before Psalm 101. Amen? You, you see the wisdom of that, no doubt. <laughs> but Psalm 101 is an unusual psalm in that part of what it's doing is, I think, it's the oath of uh, fealty. That the, uh, that the Davidic heirs are to take before the Lord. It's their commitment to righteousness. Are you with me here? Yeah. So, so uh, uh, most of the Psalms have some kind of uh, royal Im imagery, royal thematic that cast this whole book in one way or another as a royal book. Um, David himself shows up... Uh, in 77 psalm headings, uh, now I know that these psalm headings are not original, amen? Have you been taught this? Yeah? There's only one problem with that. There's no evidence of it. <laughs> All the evidence we have, as far back as we can go, which is um, uh, probably the Septuagint, 3rd century B.C., uh, but also the Psalms uh, manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls all have headings. And every psalm in the Bible outside the book of Psalms, Habakkuk, um, 
3 and uh, uh, first, uh, Second Samuel 22. Every psalm outside the book of Psalms has a heading. And every collection of psalms in the ancient Near East have headings. Why should it be only the Bible psalms that don't have headings? But more than that, David is referred to either directly by name or by reference of a pronoun in 267 times in the book of Psalms. To, to make it even more specific, Zion or Jerusalem are referred to 164 times. How, how much does it take? What, what does it take to make us say, you know, this is probably a royal book. And uh, finally, enemies occur 693 times. Now, that would not be an inherent argument because individuals have enemies too. But not whole nations. <laughs> Are you with me here? So, so how is it, what kind of a person is it who has enemies who are whole nations? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. <laughs> <And> <laughs> but that's part of my point, heads of state. Are you with me here? So we're probably dealing with a royal hymn book in this book of Psalms. Um, in that regard, then, what difference does it make? Well, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but sometimes when you look at Old Testament quotations in the New, um, it's not always clear why we're quoting those, especially Psalms, in reference to Jesus. One of the hardest ones for me is Psalm 102, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. I, I don't understand what, how, the, how the author of Hebrews is reasoning to get a reference to Jesus out of Psalm 102. Um, so I, that, I, that doesn't shake me in any way. There are lots of things I don't understand. I believe everything in the Bible. I just don't understand it all. And so if, if I had to understand everything in order to deal meaningfully with the text, it would, it would be devastating, but I don't have to do that. Hmm? Um, the, uh, but, but then, if this is the case... Psalms expresses the hopes and fears of and the expectations for David and his heirs. If it's a royal hymn book, this is what it's, it's, it's among the things that it's doing. In that regard, then, the New Testament has taught us the number one book in the Old, in the Old Testament quoted in the New is Psalms. Second is Isaiah, and third is Deuteronomy. <laughs> Just as an aside here, the same for the, for the Dead Sea Scrolls. The number one books that are represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls are, in that order, Psalms, um, Isaiah, and Deuteronomy. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it also, it, so, if this is a book expressing the hopes and fears and admonitions, exhortations to the Davidic house, these would be exhortations to the people too. A king without a people is of essentially no consequence. Yes? Um, I'm king of the world. <laughs> Pastor seems to have said something like that this morning. I'm king of the world. <laughs> so why don't you all follow me? Because each of you is king of the world. Amen? <laughs> there was an old joke came out of World War II. The Japanese soldier called back to headquarters and said, I've taken 10,000 American citizens, uh, uh, captives. 
And they said, good, bring them back. He said, they won't let me. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to, to have, I have, I personally have surrounded 10,000 soldiers. <laughs> Makes no sense, yes. Uh, but but if, you, if you're a king, you have a people, and whatever is said to the king is in part an exhortation to the people as well. Does that make sense to you? So if we're talking about the heirs of David, then one thing that really helps me is to understand if we're talking about the heirs of David, we're talking about the heir of David. Yes? What's problematic about Psalm 102 it doesn't refer to Jesus in terms of his royalty. It refers to Jesus in terms of his deity in, in Hebrews chapter 1. I'm not sure how to get to that point, though I know what the author is trying to get at. Um, so it, it instructs the people about kingship, how to relate to it, what to hope for from it. And in that regard, then, I have to ask, well, what about the relation to Jesus? Well, we've just been saying it. If this is about the royal house, you see, the royal house is in trouble because the head of the royal house is an adulterer and murderer. And every... who also loved God with all his heart, soul, and strength. What do you do with that? Uh, because when God sent the prophet to confront him, he immediately repented. That's the heart that loves God. Right? Even, even in deep sin, that's a heart that loves God. Amen? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, every sub- subsequent king of Jerusalem is evaluated according to David. But David is an adulterer and a premeditated murderer. And... In, in 2 Samuel 7, when the Davidic covenant is given, it's repeated as in other places as well. Psalm 89 is a good example. If his sons will walk in my ways, well, what if they don't? Is the covenant invalidated? Well, no. Because you see, the covenant was not made on the basis of the faithfulness of the sons. It was made on the, on the basis of the faithfulness of the Father. Are you with me here? And it's guaranteed to the heirs, not to the sons of David, but to the heirs of David. Are you with me? Because not every son is an heir. Only one son in any generation is an heir. Are you with me? Yes. So down the generations we go and we see good kings. And we see some really bad kings. Yes. And finally, there's a, there's a king named Jehoiakim or Jeconiah who is removed from the kingship altogether and all of his sons are debarred from the, from the, from the throne of David. So if the covenant doesn't depend on the faithfulness, uh, faithfulness of the heirs, but being an heir depends on faithfulness to God, what's going to happen? If God's promise is not simply abrogated, if it is not annulled by the sin of man, if it is not made failure because of the sin of humanity, then God will fulfill it, but he will raise up an heir who will fully qualify even better than David 
to sit on the throne and to rule. Does this make sense to you? All right. So, so what we've just been saying, Psalms expresses the hopes and fears and expectations of David and his heirs. And so the hope, fears, expectations of David's family and his heirs are culminated in Jesus. And the Psalms are going to talk about kingship. And we can apply these to Jesus. When, when I read Eaton's book several years ago, I thought, that's why Psalms is quoted so often. Because it's a royal hymn book. So what I want to do over the next two weeks and three um, is to confront the reality. John chapter 13 and verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Remember this? Then what got him through, humanly speaking, what got him through this time? Part of it is the book of Psalms. And Psalm 16 may be a key part of it. Psalm 16 is quoted twice in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts 13, by two different people. In Acts 2, it's Peter, and in Acts 13, it's Paul. Um, So they're both quoting it with reference to Jesus and with reference to a specific point about Jesus. We'll talk about that in Psalm 16. So what are we dealing with in Psalm 16? The outline, I said to you a little bit ago, it's a psalm of confidence. It really is a very strong song of confidence. But it looks like to me two things are going on in the psalm. One is... David, as he, as he writes this psalm, do you note the heading of Psalm 16? Yeah, whatever a miktam is, nobody knows for sure. Uh, Septuagint translated it as an inscription. But this is by David. David. This is David's, I think, what we said a, a while ago about Psalm 101, Psalm 16 may have the same function. It's a, it's a song... A, a, um, an announcement of his fealty, his um, subjection to the kingship of God and his intention to be God's full servant. Um, and in light of that, then, we'll, we'll climax this whole study this morning with Psalm 212. But before we get there, i got to go through the psalm. What's, what's the psalm look like? It starts with a, a petition an invocation and confidence in verse 1. It proceeds through confession of faith, through an affirmation of confidence in verse 2, repudiation of all other allegiances. Um, I have that in verses 3 and 4. This is not the way. Yes, yes, I'll take that. Verses 3. No, I wouldn't read verse 3 that way. But in effect, it's, that's where it's going. And then, and then in verse 5, there is a confession. It's followed by, then, thanksgiving in verses 6 to 11, for all the goodness of God to David. Uh, first, a report of the grace received. Then second, a vow. In Israel, they made vows on a regular basis. On the basis of what God has done to me, I vow to do X. Does this make sense to you? Or in order to encourage God to do this, I'm, I'm now expressing in my prayer, in my petition to him, I'm expressing, I intend to act responsibly and righteously in light of whatever you do for me. So here's what I plan to do. Does this make sense to you? All right. So the vow in verse 7, uh, the 
affirmation of faith in verse 9, and finally praise in verses 9 to 11. Let's go through this quickly. Um, question? Thought I heard a voice. Uh. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, it's going to come back up. It's going to come back up as we go. Um, the petition, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Oh, my brothers and sisters. I, I could spend the rest of the time just talking about the last clause. For I take refuge in you. The verb occurs, take refuge, occurs 37 times in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, with only two exceptions, God is always the one in whom you take refuge. Um, the best I can do to explain what this means, there are two examples, therefore, two, ju- ju- Judges 9, 15, and Isaiah 30, verse 2, where the word take refuge does not have God as the person or the one in whom we take refuge. Isaiah 30, verse 2, Israel is facing invasion by Assyria. And they go to find security to Egypt. Egypt is the other great power of their day. They have the great military. They're close, so they can come quickly. There are political reasons why Egypt would want to support Judah as opposed in in any confrontation with the Assyrians. Am I making sense to you? They don't want the Assyrians on their doorstep. They want them as far away from the doorstep of Egypt as they can get them. So... Surely, if we make an alliance with Egypt, we're going to go seek security, take refuge in Egypt. Egypt is going to be our bulwark. They're going to bring the powerful army. That's what we need. After all, we're confronted by an army. If we were confronted by demons, we'd go to God, but we're confronted by armies. So what, do we, what must we fight? How must we respond with armies? Amen? Wrong. But Egypt is of no use. There's only one person in whom you can take refuge. And the amazing thing is when you take refuge in the Lord, he becomes like a rock. By rock, I mean a a large crag that you would build a fortress on. One of the strongest places in in that military context that you could find a fortress. Or he is a shield. Or he is uh, like a mother bird with her outstretched wings. Problem is, I can't see him. But I must learn, theologically, this verb emphasizes human insecurity and inability in the face of calamity and divine security and ability to harbor and preserve those who are in distress. That's not only military, it's not only spiritual, it's also financial, it's also political strongest place you have is to pursue the plan of God taking refuge in God with enemies all around Uh, I may have mentioned to you a joke came out of of the Civil War in the midst of battle when the when the shells are hottest you'll find me where the uh, where the uh, fighting is hottest you'll find me where the shells are thickest under the ammunition wagon they always kept the ammunition wagon three miles to the rear (laughs) but in fact the, the safest place, Psalm 48, Psalm 46, the safest place in attack is at the heart of what God is doing. So those two psalms are songs of Zion. 
when Zion stands not with hills surrounded, but with enemies surrounded, the safest place to be is where God makes his residence, where God shows his glory. That means then that as we pursue, as David pursues, as his heirs pursue, this project of living with God as their refuge, God is going to show them how trustworthy he is so that millions of people will, will be able to see the, the, the faithfulness of God and his power by bringing you into the greatest danger that you can even imagine and he will let that danger go on long enough that it looks like he's not going to respond. And everybody is saying to you, you're a fool to trust in this. But the king must be the one who stands firm in trusting in the Lord, taking refuge in the Lord. Otherwise, his people never will. Verse 2, then, the confession, verses 2 to 5. There is an affirmation of confidence in verse 2. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. This is the other major theme of this psalm. The issue is how good is the Lord and what does the goodness of the Lord look like? Folks, I want to emphasize to you how important it is to learn the meanings of common words in Scripture. <laughs> good is one of our most common words in English, I suppose. I I don't know, but I'm, I'm guessing we probably use the word good. Dinner was good, yes. The movie was good, yes. Um, the sermon was good. Everything's good, yes. What does it mean that God is good? Well, the, the rest of the psalm is going to be spelling this out. So we don't need to say a lot about it right now. Just to say, David says, I have no good but you. You're the only good I have. Um. The goodness of God outlasts savings accounts <laughs> and investments. Yes? The goodness of God outlasts political parties. Yes? So what kind of good must I look for? What kind of good is right? Um, the kind of good that sees God as so good that everything else is just icing. It's just there. Are you with me here? Verse 3. He, he renounces all other sources of good. He takes pleasure, verse 3, in the, in the saints that are in the earth. But what he does on the other side, verse 4, is warn people, look, you don't realize every other source of help is going to fail. Every other source of help is going to fail. And, and I have already renounced them all. That's what... A person in covenant relationship with God does. That's what the king must be. That's what his people must be too. What kind of people must a king of this sort have? Same kind of people. Does this make sense to you? Verse 6, then we turn. I'm going to pass this by. When he says, by the way, you are my God. This is not just, you're my God. <laughs> it's not just, a, well, I'm just saying that this is my God. No, this is a, a, a political statement. He is making an affirmation, establishing his commitment to serve God. I may say to a son, and, and, and there's a quotation from Hammurabi's Laws. I know you're just up on Hammurabi, but <laughs> if, if a man has a slave wife and she has sons, if he ever says to the sons, 
my sons. Then they get an inheritance with the wife, the, the full wife's sons. If he never says that, they don't get any inheritance. If uh, so, when he, when you say, "My, you are my God," you are acknowledging that your intent is to follow Him, and you make yourself His servant, and He is your Lord, He is your Master, and your purpose is to do His will. So, so the the Davidic King is called. Not just this is not simply David's affirmation. This is what all of his heirs are called to do as well. Uh, so verse, uh, uh, let's see, I'm going to move past this to verses 6 to 11. There's the thanksgiving. There's a report of grace received in verse 6. The lines have fallen to me. Isn't that a nice verse? The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Amen. What's that even mean? It's as if David was back in the days of Joshua and getting an allotment in the land but he doesn't even need an allotment of the land. Why? Because he's taking the place of a Levite. Look at the verse. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. The same language in Joshua. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful for me. In fact, pick up verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You, have, uh, you support my lot. The Levites didn't need any land in the land of promise, because God was their lot. I have a lot at 8605 Lexington Drive. <laughs> Amen. It's a small lot, so it's a little lot. It's not a large lot, it's not a big lot. It's a whole lot. <laughs> but the only lot David needs is the Lord. And with the Lord he has everything, without the Lord he has nothing. Even though he's king. Verse Seven, there's a vow. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. To bless the Lord means, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge him as the giver of all gifts. Read Psalm 103. Whenever you read, bless the Lord, think of Psalm 103. Think what David is doing there. He is recounting all the benefits that God has given. Uh, uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget any of his benefits. And so he starts listing the benefits. Are you with me here? So to bless the Lord means um, to acknowledge him as the giver of all gifts. I, so the vow, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord, verse 8 now, verse 8, uh, there's an affirm- affirmation of faith. His intent is to so fill his consciousness, his awareness with the presence of the Lord. He can't see anything else. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is not my right hand. I will not be shaken. This is Psalm 16. Sometime read Psalm 44, which follows it. Verse 9, then, we come to the praise. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore, my heart is glad. My, jo- my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely for you will not abandon uh, my soul to Sheol, nor wilt thou allow my, thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou wilt make, uh, make known to him the way of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. A couple of things to say here. This is the passage that's quoted twice in the New Testament. Uh, it's actually in about 
three places in, or, or four places in those two passages. The, the point I would make here, brothers and sisters, is we've generally said there's not much of a view of afterlife in the Old Testament. It's, it's far more f- pervasive than we thought. It's still difficult to point out a whole lot at it, of it, but the king who lives this way, the king who commits himself to the Lord as God's servant, knows that even his death is not the end. Brothers and sisters, the righteous live, yes, but the wicked die. Does that mean the righteous don't die? Well, yeah, the righteous do die. There are lots of righteous people who died. So if the righteous live, but the wicked die, do the wicked always die an early death? No. Sometimes, as Psalm 37, Psalm 73 say, sometimes they live long and fruitful lives and they're buried in honor. Yes? So either God is wrong or he intends us to understand that the righteous live beyond death. And so now he, was, he, is, he is affirming his confidence. Even death cannot be my enemy. So, um, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow my... Your, your Holy One, um, there is a text critical problem here, very small. Uh, your Holy One or my Holy One, it's easy to, easy to go back and forth. The, he's probably talking about David as the one in covenant relationship with himself. It's not the word holy that we're convinced of, or that, we're, that we know about. This is a different word, Hasid, which is a person who's in covenant relationship with God. David's in covenant relationship with God. How do we know? Because God does deliver David. Yes? Are you with me here? Have you known God's deliverance in the past? Then you're one of the Hasid too. One of the Hasidim. You are a Hasid. If you know something about Jewish life, there is a group that, call them the, that calls themselves the Hasidim, uh, the Hasidic groups. We're talking about a different thing. We are covenant-loyal people. Are you with me here? Then if, if God delivers his covenant-loyal people, he doesn't just deliver them from financial ruin, maybe sometimes through financial ruin. He doesn't merely deliver them from political disaster or economic disaster. He doesn't just deliver them from their sins and their consequences. He also delivers them from death. But this is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Yes? Okay, I believe that. I'm convinced of it. Jesus is the king. He's the heir of David. He's the one that brings us a life that fits the covenant, that meets all the covenant standards. He has outlived David. I don't mean lived longer than David. I mean he's lived, he has lived in a way that outdoes David. He outstrips him. Yes? He fits the covenant. He is the king to whom God can give all the promises. Psalm 2-7, uh, uh, I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. Verse 8 Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your personal possession. Jesus is that person. And I can see how Psalm 16 would apply to him. The Peter and Paul 
both apply it to the proof of the resurrection, the, the, the Old Testament. How did Jesus know the way he was to walk? How did he know what was coming upon him? Because he knew the Psalms, among other things. And he knew that death was awaiting him. John 13, 1. He knew that death was awaiting him. But on the other side of death is resurrection. And not just everlasting life in some kind of spiritual realm. It's everlasting life in resurrection, glory, incorruption. Amen? So what has that to do with you and me? Now, finally, Psalm 2, 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be instructed, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the Son. That is, give allegiance to this one who is the king, the Son of God. Kiss the Son, lest he go angry. Uh, and you perish in the way, for his, his wrath flares up in an instant. Blessed is one, is everyone who takes refuge in him. <laughs> so it's a psalm for us too. It's not only for David and his heirs to know what it means to be the Davidic king. It's not only for Jesus to know what he's coming. It's for you and me to know how do I, what, who is the king? How do I respond to him? Why, if God, brothers and sisters, can deliver from death, not just in a very long life. Oh, boy, they're advertising some of us are going to live a thousand years. I can't even. I, why? I, yeah, I know. Why would you want to? In this world, you really want to live a thousand years? But not just deliver me from aging and from death. He's, he's going to deliver us from everything that death means because he's already delivered the king. But what kind of people? Well, the kind of people who do the same thing that the king does. You are my God. An oath of fealty to the risen Jesus. Let's close with prayer. Father, you are a mighty and awesome God. It, 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 we, we hardly even can comprehend you. We do not. We know what you've told us in your word, and we know you're great, but your greatness surpasses our, our greatest ambitions, our greatest hopes, our greatest dreams. We know that you are awesome beyond imagination, that everyone who stands before you trembles, some in terror of what you will do, others in amazement at your greatness. We know that you are a gracious and caring, compassionate God, for you have sent Jesus. But we don't know how gracious, caring, and compassionate you are because we still don't know the extent of our own sin. How will we know that until that day when we stand before Jesus and you reveal it, not to bear us down, but to lift us up to see the victory that's won by our great champion, Jesus who is now our King and our Lord. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.